This is now our fourth sermon on this narrative, on the institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke's Gospel. We saw first, and of chief importance, that it is the feast of the eschatological kingdom. That was the first sermon in the series. That's the frame of what the Supper is trying to do and create. Trying to create a heavenly eschatological people. That feast anticipates the great feast of the great day. It is then we saw the liquid and edible gospel. And it is the feast of the new and everlasting covenant. And today we will see that it is the school of kings. We'll be looking at the last portion of the reading, the gospel reading, namely verses 24 through 30. And we'll make the two points that are here in your bulletin. The kings of the Gentiles. That's in verses 24 through 27. And the kings of the kingdom, which is in verses 28 through 30. The kings of the Gentiles, the kings of the kingdom. So first, then, the kings of the Gentiles. So at the outset, please notice we are still in the context of the Passover meal and the establishing of the supper. This is clear from two things. First is this. Jesus speaks here of reclining and serving at table and refers to himself as the one doing the serving. And second, the reference at the end of our text to eating and drinking at his table in his kingdom shows that we are still in the atmosphere of the meal. So we've not moved on here from the scene of Jesus instituting the supper. And just just prior to our text, in verse 23, Jesus declares that one of them, with him at table, will betray him. And he pronounces a woe on the betrayer. And we're told that they began to question one another which of them it could be who were going to do this. And in this, we can praise the disciples. You know, they didn't say, well, it won't be me. One of you guys might betray the Lord, but I never would. They questioned one another. Who is going to do this? The other gospels say they were sorrowful. And they began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? That's a good question to ask when you come to the Lord's Supper. They didn't assume it was Judas. Well, it must be that. It must be him. They asked about the possibility of their own betrayal. And we should do the same. After all, it was our betrayal that caused that body to be broken and that blood to be spilled. That is a monument to our capacity for betrayal. Is it I, Lord? We are not beyond betrayal, even as we come to the supper. We are not beyond treachery, even as we appear at our most pious. So to their credit, to their credit, the apostles ask the question, is it I? Am I made of the stuff that could do that? To which the theological answer is, yes, indeed, as are we all. 
Is it I? It's a profound moment of self-awareness. Right? But this is a masterfully crafted narrative of human psychology. The very next words are, a dispute also arose among them. Now, notice the word also. It's like Luke is saying, oh, in addition to questioning themselves about betraying Christ, they also got into an argument. It's a jarring transition. I mean, can you imagine in this atmosphere, on this night of betrayal and arrest, in the hour of darkness, in the shock and sobriety of what Jesus has just done at the Passover meal, right? When he says this body is about to be given and this blood is about to be poured out. Can you imagine at that time getting into a fight about who is the greatest? Right? It boggles the imagination. How does it go, actually? I wonder, you know, okay, I'm not the betrayer. And you're not the betrayer, so let's talk about who's better. Yes, he's giving his life away for us, but let's discuss how we can climb over one another and get to the top. It's hard to fathom. And yet, and yet, for all of that, it's profoundly realistic. From the trappings of sober self-questioning, the apparent humility, is it I, Lord, to a fight about status and position in the next breath. From piety to political power plays, they are us and we are them. They are us and we are them. I mean, we have some self-awareness too, but it usually passes Right? We forget who we saw in the mirror very quickly. We regularly partake of the supper and violate the unity of the body before we get to the parking lot or even to the door. You know, perhaps it's with a snide or a critical or a condescending remark about a brother or a sister. Perhaps it's a grotesquely silly dispute like the one in our text. We are inventive at living out a mangled version of the Christian life, of turning the supper into a charade. How does a dispute like this arise, you might ask? Well, it seems like it arises because Jesus has referred multiple times to a future banquet and to sitting at table. And that raises questions of status and honor in this culture with the apostles. This is a shame and honor culture. Oh, there's going to be a banquet. I better get my tickets. Earlier in the same gospel, Jesus tells a parable to those who were invited to a banquet he was attending. When he noticed how when they got there, they all took the places of honor. Take the lowest place, he said. Do not seek the place of honor. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humbling ourselves is an... Jesus doesn't say, and he who shall be humbled by God will be exalted. He says, he who humbles himself. It's an active, perpetual vocation of the Christian to humble themselves. Those are the people, Jesus says, who will be lifted up. And later he says, beware the scribes who love the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. So there's going to be an eschatological feast. Let's talk about the places of honor. They probably thought this was harmless, right? They probably thought this is just a question of social etiquette. I mean, somebody has to have the place of honor. Somebody's got to be first. We might as well be first. So Jesus responds to their dispute. And this is a piece of teaching that you all know. You've all heard it. I want to try and convince you this morning that you have not heard its radical edge clearly enough. Here's what he says. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Well, of course they do. I mean, that's what kings do. That's what the state does. The state exercises lordship. It has the power of the sword. The kings of the Gentiles, the kings of the nations, exercise lordship over them. What else would you expect them to do? So please get this. These are not especially wicked kings that Jesus has in mind here. These are just the kings of the nations, generally speaking, described neutrally. This is what kings do. This is not what tyrants do. This is what lawful monarchs do. They exercise lordship over those under their care. They exercise dominion. This is just how the world works. It's just politics as usual. Right? This is just an, a, a realistic view of earthly power. They have power. They love power. They exercise power and authority. And they like and they get recognition for their beneficence. They are called, Jesus says, benefactors. This is just referring to a culture where the wealthy would give generous gifts, for example, to a city or a town, and they would be honored, and it would help to keep them in power. Right? It's your congressman bringing home the bacon so you can build the local community center and so that he or she can win the next election. It's just politics. But it's a system, Jesus says, where gift-giving becomes a form of manipulation and a form of leverage and a form of control. And you end up with the whole quid pro quo, right? The whole this for that political system in its wake. All the lobbying and the horse trading and the deal making. And Jesus is not rejecting abuses of power here. He's rejecting the whole system. But not so with you. Right? The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship. And they use money, benefactions, and gifts to sustain their position. But not so with you. If you're thinking, well, then how can we engage in politics at all? Then you're tracking. 
What does he say about seeking to exercise authority, even authority that's buttressed by your own generosity? Here's what he says. He says, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? So you made a political donation. Even sinners lend to sinners and expect to get back the same amount. But, he says in the next breath, love your enemies. Right? The foremost piece of Jesus' political advice, which perpetually goes unheard, is that. Love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Not here, in heaven. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So much for using gift-giving and wealth as leverage to gain power. Rather, he says, here, right, contrary to the wealthy kings of the nations, he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. What does he mean by the youngest? He means the one with the least status. What political power do children have? What do we aspire for? I, I sometimes wonder about American Christianity. Right? We aspire, do we aspire to just Christianize the kings of the nations? Or do we aspire to become as the youngest? Children occupy the bottom rung of power relations. Jesus says, empty yourself into that form of powerlessness. Stop the scratching and clawing to try and clean up the Gentile kings and their power and their greed. You want to be great? Become as one who has no power at all. The youngest. So, yes, you're not going to want Jesus as your campaign manager. I mean, after all, he lost his earthly campaign pretty badly. Hire someone you know with a little more hard-boiled realism. This guy's an idealist. Let the greatest become as the least, he says, and the leader as the one who serves. And by serves here, the word means the one who waits on tables. Right? Which brings us back to the Eucharistic context. Who is greater, he asks, the one who reclines at the table? as they are now doing for the Passover? Or the one who serves? Isn't, the one, isn't it the one reclining? But I'm among you as the one who serves. I'm a one, among you as the one who is upending all conventional social and political power arrangements. So he says true greatness is taking the lowest place. The menial place. The menial place, the powerless place, which Jesus is modeling at the supper. He's doing it right there for them. It's a radical, now get this, because Jesus has made it this by his own words about the kings of the nations. His posture of taking the lowest place, the powerless place, the place of the servant, the place of the household slave at the table, that is a radical Political witness, which contrasts to the way that the kings of the nations rule. And Jesus is modeling this for us, 
Not merely because he's serving at the table. But the, the mystery of the table is about his suffering servinghood. He's not only serving at the table, he's on the table, demonstrating this way. The table is about his self-emptying, his non-grasping, his non-retaliatory, non-threatening, non-reviling, meek, suffering posture toward his Gentile Jewish king, the Gentile kings in the Sanhedrin, executioners. There's a posture toward corrupt political authority that's enshrined at the table. It's not a posture American Christians want to adopt. The body given, not the body defended, the body given, and the blood spilt. Not someone else's blood spilt, his blood being spilt. He takes the lowest place. He takes the place of the one who serves, the slave. He takes the form of a suffering, trampled servant. That is what kingship looks like in this age. His life, his witness, right before Pilate, but especially his death, right? They are the complete opposite. Right, they are the antithesis to the accepted way of political authority among the kings of the Gentiles, including our Gentile kings. Miroslav Volf is a, a scholar at Yale, Christian scholar. He says this. He's commenting on a passage similar to this in 1 Peter. He says, The call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. All right, this is the great irony and mystery of the gospel. Somehow that way has more cultural, long-term, transformative effect than the direct political way of the Gentile kings. So he says it, was, it had more effect than the direct call to revolutionize the structures would have had. But then he goes on to say this, for, for an, an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed the worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. That is subverting a politics of dominion at its very core. And it would be a mistake, beloved, it would be a mistake to think that Jesus thinks that this way of life is some kind of temporary expedient. Like, you know, we give up power now, but we get power like the Gentile kings have later. Right? We humble ourselves so we can be exalted and exercise real power. It's true, of course, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. But they will be exalted in the mode of humility and brokenness and lamb-likeness. And they will be exalted at God's time. And they will reign in the image of Christ. So however we want to speak of exaltation and reigning with Christ, it cannot be read in such a way as negating this text, the teaching here, but not so with you. But not so with you. There are no scenarios 
where we exercise lordship the way the kings of the nations do. None. Even Jesus reigns and judges as the slain but standing lamb. Jesus doesn't turn into another person who lacks gentleness and meekness and mildness and compassion and mercy when he's raised from the dead. Even in the eschaton, as the exalted king, Jesus remains the servant he is and calls us to be here. In Luke 12, he says this, and part of this was in the call to worship this morning. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. That's what Jesus will do at his appearing. He will take up that mode of service again. So true greatness does not come through taking the lowest place. As if lowliness and meekness and the imitation of that Christ was just a means to an end. True greatness does not come through taking the lowest place. True greatness is taking the lowest place. That's the kings of the Gentiles. Secondly, the kings of the kingdom. So, despite their current folly, Jesus still speaks favorably of the apostles, and he says, you are those who stayed by me in my trials. Right? The way to the kingdom is the way of tribulation and trial. And then he makes this astounding promise. I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. This can be read as follows. I covenant to you, as my Father covenanted to me, a kingdom. So, Please get just this much, right? Kingdom and covenant belong together. The kingdom comes by way of the new covenant. And the kingdom here is future. Jesus is assigning to the apostles a role in his eschatological future kingdom. We've already seen him do this twice in the passage, right? He says, this meal is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he says, he won't drink the cup until the kingdom of God comes. So we know he's referring to this future kingdom when he says, I assign to you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So the apostolic band, they will eat and drink at his table where, at his table, where all the power relations and conventions of the political world and its kings are reversed and upended. There are no best seats at this banquet. You can't tip the mater d and get a better seat. The rich don't have any better seat than the poor at the banquet. And at Jesus' eschatological banquet, all the power relations and conventions of the political world and its kings, just as here, are reversed and upended. If you've never had this kind of political vertigo happen to you in your life, then you have not listened to the gospel. A text like this should leave you reeling, thinking, what do I do next? How, how do I assimilate that? What does that mean? They're going to eat at his table in his kingdom, and then they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And what is beyond dispute 
right, is, again, the, the future eschatological nature of this reality. Matthew 19 says this. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a text worthy of being unpacked in its own right, but we can't do that this morning. The apostles will have some sort of governing, ruling role over the restored Israel of God in the age to come. They will eat at Jesus' table again. They will sit on thrones. They will judge. They did not do that in their earthly lives. What they got in their earthly lives was martyrdom. Participation in the manner of the life the Lord lived on earth the manner of his self-giving unto death, the manner which is set forth on that table. They got the Eucharistic life, which is taking up one's cross and following the one who presides and whose death is set forth on the table. What did Jesus get in his earthly life? Martyrdom now, glory later. What did the apostles get in their earthly life? Martyrdom now, glory later. As it was for Jesus, and as it is for the apostles, so it is for you. Yes, the apostles are unique. But they set a pattern for all the saints. For scripture says we're all going to eat and drink with Jesus and sit on thrones. And those who suffered will reign with him and participate in judging. So, in clothing, clothing, in closing... In, 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 the, in clothing as well. But in closing, in, clo- in closing, let me, I'm going to step back. I want to draw your attention because sometimes the most obvious things cannot be seen by us, right? We're just, we just not good sometimes at seeing the shape of things. I want you to see the shape of this text. One thing you should pick up when you read this text is why is he talking about the kings of the nations and their authority right in the middle of the Lord's Supper? Hopefully I've tried to make that clear. And notice the end of the text. In verse 30, it's my table, in my kingdom, on thrones judging. There's a profound connection between the table and rule in the kingdom. The table is the school for kings. What does it teach? Well, it teaches us to forsake the pattern of lordship followed by the kings of the nations. Their exercise of authority, their gifts, their benefactions. It teaches us to forsake the places of great status and to seek the lowest place. It teaches us that we are to seek to be as Jesus was among us as the one who serves. And what that service means is demonstrated right on the table, right? The body given, the blood poured out, the way of the cross. The ethic of the Sermon on the Mount, embodied in Jesus' public witness, in the face of unjust, wicked, political authority. Where he had rights, but he did not assert them. Where he could have called down for legions of angels and said, I won't do that. This is the way that Jesus went, and now he is crowned as king of kings. His estate of humiliation has now given way to his estate of glory, 
There's a dread and a terror and a splendor about him now, but it is, he is still the terrible meek one. So another way to put this, maybe in summary, is this. Kingship takes the shape of the cross, of suffering weakness in this age, before it takes the form of resurrection and sitting on thrones and judging in the age to come. That's the form reigning takes in this age. The American church has said, no, thank you. The Eucharist is the school of kings. It fits you for reigning in the kingdom of God. It forms kings now through martyrdom, through witness, through service, through suffering, through lowliness, through the imitation of Christ. Kings who reign now in weakness and who will reign in glory then. Can you imagine if the church even asked the question, what would our politics look like if they were the politics of the Eucharist? If the decisive shaping force of our political witness was that... Of course, we never ask that question because it's too revealing of our idolatries. Right? So, back to the partisan rancor. It's not even occurred to most of the church in the West that there might even be a politics of the Eucharist. There is then, in summary, an eschatology of the Eucharist. And that eschatology right there is the eschatology of the Christian life. How could it be anything but that? That's a condensed version of the Christian life. The Eucharist has an eschatology. Here's what it does. It orients us to heaven itself where Christ is. It orients us to the coming wedding supper of the Lamb. It orients us toward our coming participation in his reign. The Eucharist is designed to create a heavenly people who live out of the age to come and who yearn for the coming kingdom. That's why we say, Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. The locale of the supper is heaven and the age to come. And guess what? We don't tumble out of heaven when we get to the parking lot. That's where the Christian life is lived, and the Eucharist reminds us of that. It's a displacement. That's the first half of the eschatology of the Eucharist. What about now? What does the Eucharist say about now? Well, it says everything I've said in this sermon. It says that now, in this age, the power machinations of the Gentiles are unlawful, but not so for you. It says we don't seek status, and we don't seek honor, and we don't seek lordship. It trains us in the way of Jesus' earthly life, the way demonstrated in that witness unto death, the way of shame and weakness and public humiliation and defeat, the way of conquering by being conquered. That is the eschatology of the Eucharist, and it precludes all eschatologies which don't conform to that eschatology. That is the form of Christian existence. That is why the table is the school. 
the demanding, exacting, wrenching, tearing, disruptive academy of kings. If you want to reign, that's your seminary. Thus far, the American church has refused to enroll. But you know who enrolled? The apostles enrolled. As have a teeming throng of martyrs and faithful witnesses. Jesus is calling you and I to register. That is the Eucharist. School is in session. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen.